Well, there's an old joke in preaching. It says, if you want to grow your church, uh, preach on sex or the end times. And if you really want to, things to take off, answer the question, will there be sex in the end times? For the next two weeks, uh, we will not be preaching on the end times, and so I'll let you do the math and fill in the blank in there. In full disclosure, uh, I'd rather teach on hell and church discipline and tithing than to teach on sex. Now, the only thing more uncomfortable to me than the idea of teaching on sex is being one of the pastor's kids while he teaches on sex. Is there anything worse, right? And here, uh, despite my discomfort and my children's delight, we are, in fact, uh, going to take the next two weeks, maybe three, for a little mini-series called God's Good Design. And, and here's the big-picture concept I want you to embrace uh, that applies not only to this series, but our entire Worldview, And I know that's early, but if you're listening, say amen. God has a good design for everything. And following God's good design leads to human flourishing. And departing from God's design leads to brokenness. That's the overall theme or thesis of what we're teaching on. We just have to be picking a subject under uh, that thesis. And so that's true of life and marriage and work and relationships and parenting. And yes, even sex and sexuality. And God has the design and if it's followed, then it leads to human flourishing and a departure from God's good design in any area of life leads to brokenness. And one of the areas that seems to be accelerating in regards to brokenness in our culture is the area of sex and sexuality. We see this playing out in areas of same-sex marriage and rampant pornography and hookup culture among young adults and sex trafficking and sexual identity and a whole host of other issues. And I think both the Christians and non-Christians would agree on this, that there is a tremendous amount of brokenness playing out in culture in the areas of sex and sexuality. Even though we probably disagree as to the source and the solution, there's agreement, there's a tremendous amount of brokenness being played out. And listen, sexual sin is as old as humanity itself. But in American culture, there seems to be a crescendo of these issues that we're walking through, and I believe it started with the sexual revolution of the 1960s. So if you grew up in that generation, listen, it's your fault, boomer, all right? But all joking aside, what was promoted as a revolution of sexual freedom has actually, in fact, played out in a culture where there's a tremendous amount of sexual bondage and brokenness. So what was held up as freedom was actually led to bondage and brokenness in culture. Why? Because God has a good design, and when it's abandoned, that's exactly how it plays out in every single area of life. And so as much as I don't want to preach on sex and sexuality, I think we've reached a place in culture where if we don't teach on God's good design for sex and sexuality, then we cannot say with integrity that we love people and want them to experience human flourishing instead of broken and bondage. And so I want us to look at two base uh, text this morning. We're going to start off in Genesis chapter 2, and then we're going to uh, eventually make our way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. So Genesis 2 and 1 Corinthians 6 are the two primary passages we'll be looking at uh, this morning. So this week we're going to talk about God's good design for sex, and next week we're going to move into the topic of sexuality, and there may be a third week, depends on how far we get next week in our teaching. And so uh, as we're turning there, I, I want to ask you a question. And the question is this, when it comes to all the confusion and brokenness in the, under the heading of sex and sexuality, what do you think is the most important question to answer as a Christian when it comes to these subjects? 
And I'm just going to allow a little awkward pause here to actually let you think of, hey, here's a question we need to address, here's a question we need to address. So, so just an awkward pause and you think about what is the most important question we should be addressing when it comes to sex and sexuality in light of the brokenness in our culture. Now some of you in your mind have got some really, really good questions, questions that should be addressed, questions we may address in this sermon or next week or the week after we get there. But, but despite all of that wisdom, I would suggest that The key question to ask in regards to God's good design for sex and sexuality is a general question, not a specific one. And here's the general question we should be asking. Does the Bible have authority? You see, because every other question comes under that umbrella. Does the Bible have authority in every area of our lives. Is the Bible just good for life after death instructions or does it give us wisdom and principles and reveal a redeemer in the here and now between now and heaven? And the reason that so much of our worldview regarding sex and sexuality has moved away from a biblical one is because of this. We've allowed other sources to disciple us in what God's design is for sex and sexuality. Listen, as a side note, I don't know if you know this or not, I just feel like I say this as a good shepherd. TikTok is not a good place to get your theology from. Did you know that? Listen, not everything reposted on Facebook is true. I don't know if you know that either. I tell my mom all the time, say, listen, there should be a rule that when you reach seven years old, you shouldn't be allowed to post on Facebook any men. Amen? She said, you see what I posted? I said, yes, that's not even true. Oh, I'll take it down. And here's the reality. If you can't connect your viewpoint on cultural issues, sexuality, abortion, immigration, just fill in the blank. If you cannot connect your opinion or viewpoint on cultural issues back to Scripture, then you have to be honest that you've been discipled in that area by probably social media or politics. And so in a biblical worldview, the question we should be asking when it comes to any subject, including sex and sexuality, is this. Does the Bible have authority in our lives. And so now that's a lot of scaffolding before building the case biblically for God's good design for sex this morning, but I think that's important to do from a a foundational Christian worldview kind of question. Does the Bible have authority in every single area of our lives? All right? So we're going to go as far as we can today, then we'll save the rest for the week after. So let's pick up in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2 Now, we're going to look at verses 18 down through verse 25. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, Is it not good that the man should be alone? I will make a helper fit for him. Now, we're going to skip down a few verses to see the solution to man's loneliness. Verse 21, And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place without flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave in some translations. Cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25 And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so right off the bat, I I want you to notice this. Listen, Adam and Eve's favorite outfit was their birthday suits, and God's not even mad about it, right? 
There's not a verse, there's not a verse 26 in chapter 2 that it ends at verse 25, but if there was, I feel pretty confident it would not read, and God said, get some clothes on you perverts, right? This is important already. Why? Because already we're seeing the framework built for God's good design for sex, which clearly teaches the first principle this, is that sex is a good gift created by God. And that's important because sometimes in Christian circles, that doesn't always get taught. My experience is this. When it comes to Christians and dealing with the topic of sex, then it usually falls into one of three categories how we feel about it. It's either a gift, it's gross, or it's a God, lowercase g. Gift, gross, or God. And because the church is unwilling to teach on it, sometimes our silence indicates that it's something that's gross, that it's so shameful that we don't even talk about it or teach on it in the context of the church. The world teaches that sex is a God to be worshipped. And whatever we worship ends up forming us uh, in the process. And we certainly live in a culture where everything is hyper-sexualized. And so what culture is promoting is that this is a God to be worshipped. You should reorient your whole life around sex. And sometimes in the church we're totally opposite, and so it's gross, it's shameful, we don't even talk about that, but the biblical worldview is this, is that it is a good gift from God. God is the creator of sex, not Hugh Hefner, I don't know if you know that or not. And the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or variation, James chapter 1 verse 17. The Bible tells the story of Adam and Eve and emphasizes their oneness when it says, man shall leave his father and mother and shall bond or cleave unto his wife and they too shall become one flesh and they both were naked and yet felt no shame. And so clearly here what's being taught at the very foundation of human creation in verses 23 through verse 25 is the one flesh union of man and wife is more than sex but it certainly isn't less than sex. In the New Testament both Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and Paul in Ephesians Chapter 5, reference this union that's being taught here in Genesis 2 as God's design for sex and marriage, pointing to it as the historical right context for human flourishing. They're one flesh. They're naked. They're not hating it. God's saying, I ain't even mad at you. This is exactly what was designed, and it was a good thing created by God. And so this was all a part of God's design for human flourishing. And so the question becomes, how did we go from here? They've got no clothes on. They're not ashamed. God's not scolding them or correcting them to all of a sudden a culture with all kinds of brokenness and bondage related to sex and sexuality. Well, listen, here's the answer. How do we get from there to here? The answer is always the same. Sin. Sin has distorted everything in creation, including God's design for sex and sexuality. So just a few verses later, down in chapter 3, verse 7. Remember the 24 and 25? They were naked. They were not ashamed. Just a few verses later, chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Then the eyes of both of them were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Do not miss this. Listen closely because this is incredibly important. Sin brought, brought brokenness into the good world that God had made and the first apparent moral change was connected to the sexual aspects of their bodies. The first one, 
that was affected by the fall was connected to the sexual aspect of their bodies. Listen, at this point, even being naked in front of your spouse was something now to be ashamed of. Just a few verses later, it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. And what was once designed as God's good gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage now requires warnings in the Bible. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Listen to these warnings. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Verse 14, and God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Listen to this. Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her, the one flesh union. For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 6 leads us to the second key principle this morning, uh, which is this. Sex is not just a physical act. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is leaning into the Corinthians who had let culture creep into the church in every area of life. And, and one of those things was uh, they just had this view out in Corinthian culture that sex was no big deal. Like it's just a physical thing. Just, you know, they were uh, connecting with prostitutes. And so he's kind of leaning in and said, are you kidding me? That, that's not what God has designed here. And so what he's teaching them in 1 Corinthians 6 and teaching all of us is this, is that there is a spiritual dimension to sex because God made us, and here's your nerdy Theological word for the week, right? God made us psychosomatic. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, I know some psychos too, right? Not the same thing. When he says that God made us psychosomatic, what theologians mean is this. There is a, an inner man, psycho, all right? Not in the way that culture says. The inner man, and then there is the soma, uh, is the second word, which means body. And so what he's saying is that God has not just made you a spiritual being, God has not just made you a physical being, but we are one. Psychosomatic is the nature or anthropology of man. So therefore, here's what that means. That whatever you do with one, it affects the other. Whatever happens in the spiritual can affect the physical. Whatever you engage in the physical has an impact on the spiritual because we are both body and soul, outer man and inner man. And so Paul argues that because our bodies are one, sex is far from a meaningless physical activity. And so what, in a biblical world, you listen, what he's teaching is this, is that sex has a deeply spiritual meaning to it. Therefore, we cannot say with integrity, as the world says, it's no big deal. It, it, it didn't even mean anything. Well, Scripture says it means something deeply. What Paul is teaching here is that sex is not just a physical contact between two bodies it is the intermingling of souls is the biblical picture of what sex actually is that's critical in forming a biblical worldview about sex now i want you to think about this 
And I realize there's pushback in culture. There's maybe even pushback in this room. So I don't think it's a big deal. I think it's just a physical thing. I don't, I don't think it's a big deal. Let's just let's think about this. If sex has no more meaning beyond just the physical act, if sex is not a big deal, then why is sex taken by force so disgusting? Here's why. Because it means something deeper than that. And the Bible teaches that's not just the interaction of physical bodies, it is the intermingling of souls. If you don't remember anything I said, remember this. It's the intermingling of souls. And also don't forget this. I've said sex more times today already than I have my whole life in church, all right? Good night. (laughs) That's why Paul says that sexual sin is unique. If we keep reading in 1 Corinthians 6, go down to verses 18, 19, and 20, and listen to what he says. Run from sexual sin. Now, what's interesting is the Bible says, hey, stand firm, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. But when it comes to sexual temptation, it doesn't say stand firm. It says run. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Now, all sin is equal and offense against God. So I want you to hear that this morning. But different sins seem to have unique consequences, and sexual sin is So what he's saying is there's some unique consequences, even though all sins are offense against God. Listen to what he says in verse 18. For sexual morality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God. God with your body. So clearly, whether, whether we want it to or not, despite what culture is preaching, sex has an inherently spiritual dimension to it. It's what Paul's preaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It unites the body and the soul to someone else. That, that's why when there's sex before marriage in a dating relationship, that's why a breakup is so painful. Because you're literally ripping apart the one union flesh. That's why it's so much more painful. Why? Because it meant something. I was united to someone else in beyond a physical way, and so to depart from them, that one flesh union act of sex is so much more painful. When there's pain and brokenness and we deviate from God's design, which is sex is a good gift, to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And so the biblical worldview here, 1 Corinthians 6, Genesis 2, other verses, does not allow for sex outside of that covenant union relationships, and it does not allow it to be treated as something, some casual hookup. And since we're talking openly about a subject that's addressed too secretly, let me be incredibly clear. I think the greatest challenge within the church, not in culture, within the church as it relates to deviating from God's good design for sex is not in the area of homosexuality. We're going to talk about that next week. We've been guilty of yelling loudly about that sexual sin and silent about every other form of sexual sin. Listen, if statistics are true, then the greatest problem in the church is not the area of homosexuality, it's in the area of pornography and hookup culture. And listen, if you want revival to come, which does change culture as an overflow, revival always starts with the house of God. And so what he's saying is Paul leaves no allowance for this view that the culture says it's no big deal, it's just physical, it's just a hookup, it didn't mean anything. No, no, he says, no, no, it's deeply spiritual where body and soul, what one does affects the other and vice versa. 
One of my favorite preachers was lecturing at a biblical counseling conference several years ago, and I was there, and he said, let me tell you a common scenario. He said, uh, every year about when kids come home from college, he said, I, I often get a call from a panicked parent. And the parent says, hey, pastor, they said, my kid went away, they believe the Bible, they love Jesus, and now they're coming home from college, and, and they're saying, I, I don't even know if I believe any of that anymore, I don't know if the Bible's true, I don't even know if I'm a Christian anymore, they're freaked out, they call, can you talk to them? I don't know what to do, I don't know what happened. And he said, early on in my ministry, I would meet with them and I would ask all kinds of philosophical questions and I'd have this apologetic argument about why Christianity is true and those kinds of things. He said, but over the years, he said, I ask a different question. As a matter of fact, the first question I ask them now when they tell me, I'm not sure this is true, after they've been away at college, he said, the first question I ask them is this, who are you sleeping with? In other words, in an effort to justify by the students that they're on the wrong side of the Bible, what it teaches regarding sex, they make an attempt to discredit Christianity as a whole. They knew that if the Bible was true, then it has moral authority, and now they're on the wrong side of it. They tried to deny the teaching on God's sexual ethic, uh, that there's a spiritual dimension to sex, by discrediting the source. And he said, every, every time I ask him that, he said, here's the response, heads hanging. Right? Why? Because even they know in their hearts, if they truly belong to Jesus Christ, that it's not just a physical thing. That God has designed sex as, sex as something that is physical and it's spiritual. The uniting of body and soul to someone else, which is what marriage is supposed to be. Listen, we see this in, in two ways. First off, uh, we see this in the marriage covenant. Marriage covenant is just like the salvation covenant. Listen to this. In both the marriage covenant and the salvation covenant, we come to the altar to unite ourselves to someone else forever. All that's yours becomes theirs, and all that's theirs becomes yours. Some of you have learned that the hard way, right? In marriage, the woman traditionally takes on a new name, rings are exchanged, and sex is the physical seal of our commitment, out of which God often brings new life. Each one of those steps illustrates the gospel. Let me show you. In salvation, you take on a new family name. Your exchange of rings is called baptism. We celebrate that union with a meal called communion. At your salvation, we're united with Jesus through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which produces new life in us. Every single step of marriage, including sex, is preaching the gospel. We see it in the complementary nature of sex. Two different genders, male and female, is a picture of our relationship to Christ. Our union with Christ is not a union of, of identicals. Listen, we're, there's similarities, but God wrote this all through creation. God using opposite pairs to, again, produce good. Day, night, sun, moon, land, sea, earth, heaven. On the ultimate day of creation, male and female, all of that was a setup and a signpost pointing to salvation. You say, how? Here's how. We're united to Christ in salvation. Christ plays the role of the male, the life giver. We all play the role of the, the female. That's why C.S. Lewis said that in relation to God, all souls are female. Sex is a picture of our role as the bride of Christ. God designed for sexual expression in the context of marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the gospel that reconciles Jesus who is masculine with his church or the bride of Christ which is 
feminine. And so all of this is pointing to God's good design for sex that points to where? The gospel. And so God has a design, and apart from it, brokenness is the result. In, one, in this sense, sex is like fire. Fire in the fireplace, good, right? Warmth, heat, pretty, whatever, fill in the blank. Fire on the living room curtains, not so much, right? And so fire isn't the issue. The, the issue is the location of the fire. Hey, well, I, no one ever comes up and says, man, we had a great night. It was fall. We fired up our fireplace. We were warmed by the embers of our curtains that were set aflame, right? No one says that. But also, no one says fire is a terrible thing. What they're saying is the location is incredibly important. The context for which fire is held is incredibly important. And so sex itself isn't the problem. It's sex outside of God's intended design that is the problem. Now, why is there such a design that God has for sex? Here's why. Because God has a specific purpose for sex. Let me ask you a simple question this morning. And the simplicity of the answer has gotten lost among all the confusion regarding God's good design for sex and sexuality. So here's the simple question this morning. What is God's purpose for sex? Now, just to be clear, I didn't ask you what your purpose was. But think about it. If God created sex, then there has to be a purpose. And so what's the purpose of God's good creation? Well, here's the answer. To glorify God. The ultimate purpose of sex is to glorify God. How do I know that? Because everything God created, the ultimate purpose, is to glorify God. And sex is not an outlier. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans eleven thirty six: For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And so the ultimate purpose of God's good design for sex is to bring God glory now that's what abstinence teaching in the past has gotten wrong so let me just speak into that just a little bit here this morning uh, let me just say this we don't save ourselves for our spouse sexually because our future spouse deserves it your future spouse is not the ultimate motivation and I'm going to say something here that at first blush sounds wrong but hang with me all right here's what I want to say Walking down the aisle as a virgin is not the goal we should be teaching our children regarding abstinence. Now, before you start Googling area churches that believe in the Bible, all right, just, just hear me out. I've been here 12 and a half years. Give me a little leeway, okay? We reserve sex for marriage because God has a design. And submitting ourselves to that design is a way to glorify God. Sexual purity is the overflow of that goal, not the goal in and of itself, which is to glorify God. Listen, think about this. If we make anything other than God's glory the goal, then whatever that thing is, even purity, then guess what? That thing becomes an idol. And think about this. If virginity is the goal, then once that is forfeited, that person can never glorify God again in the area of sex. And that teaching's caused so much shame and so much confusion and, uh, out of the purity movement. 
But listen, if glorifying God is this goal, the standard we should be holding up regards to sex, and it should be, then even a person who's been guilty of sexual sin can still repent and receive the grace of God and once again live for God's glory. And I don't know about you, but for me, that sounds a lot more like the gospel than that other thing. The goal is God's glory, not our future spouse, in motivating us to pursue God's design. So the purity is the overflow, not the goal. God's glory is always the goal in everything, including sex. Listen to what one writer said. He said, well, the great purpose in sex is the glory of God. It's achieved through three subordinate purposes. Number one, sex is meant for intimacy. Glorifies God by uniting us with our spouse in knowledge and intimacy and mutual pleasure. And in this way, serves to display the covenant love of Christ. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. The second subordinate purpose for the glory of God is sex is meant for offspring. To bear his image, to fill the earth and give glory to his name. And so one of the God-glorifying purposes of sex is producing offspring. It's not the only one. It's one of them. And then third, sex is meant for gratitude. To glorify God by producing gratitude for his good gift that does not need to be spiritualized in order to be holy or approved by God. Church, I realize that we are swimming upstream culturally when it comes to teaching on God's good design for sex and sexuality. Listen, I realize that. But no matter how difficult it gets, Let's continue to hold fast to biblical ethics on sex, not because we're self-righteous, not because it gives us ammunition in the culture war or some kind of political affiliation argument, but because we love people too much to simply give them over to brokenness. We hold high what the Bible teaches regarding sex and sexuality, not, not because we're self-righteous. Why? Because we have believed God has a good design that leads to human flourishing, and it apart from God's good design in any area of life needs to brokenness and bondage, and we love people too much despite the onslaught of culture to just watch them drift into brokenness. That's why we hold high the Bible in every area of life. Because we believe this, that everyone's created the image of God, and the thought of them giving them over to brokenness breaks our hearts for them. And if you've departed from God's design in this area for sex, and you felt the pain of brokenness and shame, then I want you to hear me clearly this morning. If you will come to the place of repentance and quit running from Jesus, then you can be assured that he, in turn, is running towards you, arms open wide. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I recognize that, given the nature of what we've talked about today, it's a, it's a hard thing to kind of call for a public response and 
not going to do that. But I just want to share two things as you're wrestling through what the Lord's said to us this morning through his word. Number one, would you just affirm that despite what culture says, despite the pressure out there in the world, that what the Bible teaches regarding sex and sexuality is for our good and God's glory. And we just right now pray and ask the Lord, Lord, despite all the pushback in culture, despite all the pushback in all these venues, God, help me to hold fast to your word because it is good for human flourishing. And God, help me to hold fast in a kind but convictional way when the forces of culture come against it. Not because I want to be self-righteous, not because I want to win political arguments, but, but because I believe that to depart from your design leads to brokenness. And God, help me to love people too much to allow them to drift towards brokenness and bondage in this area. Would you pray that right now? That the Lord would help you to stand firm? Secondly, if you're here and you've at some point have departed from God's design for sex, if you haven't, would you just confess that right now? Would you repent of that, which means to turn away? And would you just say, Lord, forgive me, and Lord, empower me, that from this moment forward, I'm going to follow your good design, because I believe it's for my good and your glory. Would you, just, would you just pray that right now? And if you would pray that and confess that and repent of that, would you, just, would you just receive the grace of God today and forgiveness? And would you just make a decision today, despite how you feel, that you will no longer walk in shame for past sins? That today, you will walk out of here, despite how you feel, today, you will walk out of here a trophy of God's grace, because that's what you are. God, we're grateful that our lives are not the total tally of all of our sins. God, we're grateful that the worst thing we've ever done is not the truest thing about us. That God, what's true about us is what Jesus has declared is true when we belong to Him. And so Lord, give us deep conviction to live out these truths in a culture that's set against them. And God, give us a deep compassion for those who disagree with us. Let us be motivated not to be right. Let us be motivated by love. And to tell the whole world that God has a design for your good and for his glory. And so God, we're grateful that your word is sufficient. It speaks to every area of our lives. May we believe it to the point we live out of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.